Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 25th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And once again, thank you for listening. Today we're going to um, present part eight of our series, Martin Luther in Life and Death. And it's subtitled... Politics and religion must mix. We saw in part seven that um, the humanists had supported Luther to a great degree. We will continue to illustrate that. It's um, also evident that if it weren't for at least some politicians, Martin Luther would have gotten nowhere. The religious cause would not have succeeded if it were not accompanied by a political cause. And the lesson that we should learn from that is that politics and religion must mix. The Bible teaches us that we would be ruled over tyrants being in apostasy from God for a predetermined period of time. And then, when we entered into a period of self-rule, when we were freed from the rule of tyrants, we were still, nevertheless, tyrannized because without God to rule over us, tyranny is the inevitable result. So even in our perceived liberty, we are once again being ruled over by tyrants. Politics and religion must mix. Studying medieval European history is sort of like untying a bundle of knots. And you have to untie one before you can get to the next. But then, every so often, you get one that cannot be undone. So you are forced to cut the rope because there are some knots that can never be untied. The Protestant Reformation was not only religious, but it was also political. We can discuss all of the religious principles, but it is absolutely naive to think that the princes of Germany joined the Reformation because of those principles alone. They certainly did not. Rather, politics is much more responsible for the success of the Reformation than religion. We can understand a lot of the politics, but because the sinister forces that had driven some of the players were successful at remaining in the shadows, there are always going to be some things which we cannot truly understand, knots which cannot be untied. A backdrop to Luther's Reformation were the Italian wars, which spanned over 60 years and most of Luther's life, involved at diverse times with the French, the Spanish, the Austrians, the Germans, the Popes, the the Republic of Venice, and even the English and the Scots. These wars began as disputes over Naples and Milan, and resulted in several invasions of Italy, and continued as struggles for control 
between the royal houses all over Europe. They were marked by alliances, counter-alliances, and betrayals, no different than those which we have seen more recently in the world wars of the 20th century. In the meantime, the Austrians and the Venetians were fighting the Turks on other fronts, while the French were allying themselves to the Turks. At one point in the wars, the French, who under Charles VIII had originally sought to use Naples as a base for the war against the Turks, had under Francis I been so treacherous as to ally themselves with the Turks. And the French allowed the Ottomans to use the port on the Mediterranean at Toulon as a winter port for the alien fleets. As a result, over 30,000 Muslims had occupied that city for about eight months as Christians kidnapped from the coasts of Europe were being sold as slaves in the streets. In the meantime, the papacy had long been reduced to the role of a political player in the struggles for political control of the various parts of Europe. But the papacy had an upper hand because it was perceived as representing a higher spiritual authority and therefore was attributed with ecclesiastical authority. Therefore, when its ecclesiastical authority was challenged by the Roman I'm sorry, by the religious reformers. The objectives of the reformers simply became a tool used by the political players to undermine the authority of the popes. Some princes put their lot in with the reformers, hoping to gain greater power or at least greater autonomy for themselves. Others chose to remain as Roman Catholic bedfellows, but their decisions were usually for relatively the same reasons. In part seven of our presentation of Luther in Life and Death, we began to see how the humanists of Germany had rallied to Luther's cause. We described how all of the humanists, once they realized the value of Luther's rebellion against the papacy, had begun writing books and pamphlets, propagandizing in favor of Luther. We saw how many of the pagan humanists who had opposed the scholarly Christian theologians for so long were suddenly themselves transformed into Christian theologians virtually overnight, while humanists inside of the church had also rallied to Luther's cause. These humanists soon found themselves at the lead of Luther's reform movement, and the two most prominent among them were Philip Melanchthon and Ulrich von Hutten, as we have already discussed at great length. Melanchthon was the grandnephew of Johann Reuschlin, while Hutten had been one of the more active of Reuschland's many humanist supporters. As we have also seen, Reuschland was a student of the Talmud, and especially the Kabbalah, 
and he had waged a campaign against Christian officials who sought to destroy the writings of the Jews. So the humanists joined Reuschland's efforts as a champion of the Jewish cause, while Jews were not in the foreground of the Reformation, we can be assured that they were certainly in the background. And the same humanists rallied to Luther as their next opponent to Catholic Church authority. Before continuing with our main narrative, here we are going to see the humanists, Melanchthon and Hutton, portrayed from a different perspective. from a short history of Germany. It's not too short. It's well over a thousand pages. From a short history of Germany by Ernest F. Henderson, first published in London by the Macmillan Company in 1902. Our volume was, was reprinted in 1914 in a one volume edition of, a, of the original two-volume set. This is from Chapter 12, which is entitled Friends and Allies of the Reformation, which begins on page 285. Religious Ferment. The account given by Aleander of the religious for ferment into which Germany had been thrown was by no means overdrawn. There was no class of the population that was not touched by the movement, and no form of expression in which men's feelings did not vent. Between the years 1513 and 1523, the number of yearly publications rose from 90 to 900, and by far the greater part of them were polemical, Luther's own individual writings, up to the later date, numbered more than 100. Hans Sachs, the cobbler of Nuremberg, wrote a poem on the Wittenberg Nightingale and announced that the false shimmer of the moon had lured so many to the wilderness was now to be put to flight by the red love light of the morning. Albrecht Dürer painted his famous Four apostles with Peter standing behind John, whom Jesus loved. Louis Cronach drew a series of 26 woodcuts of the church as it was and the church as it should be. On the one hand, the Pope with his triple diadem and with princes kissing his toe. On the other, Christ with the crown of thorns washing the feet of his disciples. Not that all who railed at the abuses of the church were in favor of Martin Luther. Erasmus has come, had come out in an open attack upon some of his doctrines. Reuschland repudiated him and sent a weak letter of justification to the Catholic dukes of Bavaria. But even within the camp of Lutheranism, there were fatal differences as to ways and means. What the scholar expected to gain by arguments and persuasion, the knight thought he could achieve more rapidly by force of arms. And the peasant revolt, the peasants 
by revolt and violence. And there were some serious peasant revolts in this period, which we will eventually discuss. Each of these elements was to try its turn singly in the course of this long struggle, with what success we shall see as our narrative proceeds. The author moves on to Philip Melanchthon, the youth of Melanchthon, which we've already discussed in brief. The chief representative of the peaceful party and Luther's most devoted personal friend was a certain Philip Schwarzer of Breton, son of an armorer who was so skillful in forging a suit of armor for Maximilian that the later gave him as a coat of arms a lion with one paw on a hammer and the other on an anvil. Young Philip, had always had a strong religious bent, a keen sense of beauty, and an independent critical spirit. The ceremonies of the old church, indeed, had so attracted him that he had erected an altar at which, in private, he imitated the forms of the Mass. Yet, even at this early age, he doubted a preacher who declared that the wooden shoes of the Franciscans had been cut from the original apple tree of paradise. Some of the silly medieval stories about the Bible. Reuschland, who was Schwarzer's granduncle, had taken the warmest interest in the training of the boy, selecting his tutors and his schools, and providing him with rare books. Out of love and gratitude, Philip had induced some comrades to learn and perform one of the old humanists' own Latin comedies, which so delighted Reuschland that he would not rest till he had changed the barbarous name of this learned youth into its Greek equivalent, Melanchthon. At every stage in his career, the young scholar was looked upon as a prodigy, once at Heidelberg. When the professor was at a loss for a translation and wondered who could help him, there was a general cry of Melanchthon, Melanchthon, though the latter had not reached the age of 15 and was denied his master's degree on the ground of his childlike appearance before he was 19. Erasmus was in raptures over him and called immortal God to witness the promise in this youth, whose complete command of Greek and Latin, whose penetration and whose purity of diction, whose extraordinary memory, in short, the noble, even royal grace of whose gifts, a quote from Erasmus, made a profound impression on the first scholar in Europe, which at the time Erasmus was considered to be. Called at the age of 21 to preside over the Greek studies in the University of Wittenberg, 
Melanchthon, by his very first discourse on improved methods of study, made a conquest of all his hearers. Short of stature, slender, and weak-looking, with the bad habit of holding one shoulder lower than the other, he had none of the natural advantages on which orators are wont to depend. He knitted his brows. <clears throat> he knitted his brows in an ugly manner, and made awkward and violent gesticulations, and occasionally stuttered. But on those who observed him closely, his beautiful eyes and fine features did not fail of their effect, and all followed him with breathless interest when, in masterly sequence, he showed the evils in the prevalent methods and went on to unfold his plans for improvement. A return to original sources, the concernment with things themselves and not with their shadows, the reading of Greek and Latin classics in the tongues in which they were written, the study of theology from the scriptures and not from bad textbooks. These were his earnest injunctions. Who makes a beginning has won half the battle. Go bravely forward. It may be seen it may seem difficult, but let that not deter you. Industry and zeal conquer hardships. I will help you to the extent of my powers. One marvels, a listener declares, how in such a little body there can be concealed so enormous a mountain of cleverness and wisdom. And indeed, the fame of the new lecturer soon raised the number of students from the hundreds to the thousands. Luther's relation to Melanchthon was from the very first warm and confidential, Luther being an instructor at Wittenberg, at Wittenberg I'm sorry, at Wittenberg as well. Whoever, he writes, does not recognize and treasure our Philip as just the right teacher, must be a perfect ass and eaten up with self-esteem. There is no one on earth, no one on whom the sun shines, who has such gifts as Philip. And again, he is a perfect Greek, learned to the core, friendly, and of cheery disposition. He has a perfectly crowded classroom and has brought it about that especially all theologians, high, middle, and low, have taken to Greek. His devotion and industry pass all bounds. Nor was Melanchthon behindhand in his appreciation of the great pioneer of the reform movement. And of course, Luther was not the first reformer. He's being called the great pioneer in this age, but there were many before him. He speaks of him as the God-inspired messenger of eternal wisdom and justice, as the blessed dispenser of the life-giving word, as the faithful, never-sleeping shepherd who with the rod of Moses casts down the superstitious priests and the foolish, hair-splitting sophists. 
so it seems like Luther and Melanchthon were a, well, I won't say a match made in heaven, but a match made somewhere. He accompanied Luther to Leipzig at the time of the disputation with Eck, and incurred the latter's mortal enmity by occasionally prompting both Karlstadt and Luger. Eck declared that though Melanchthon might know Latin and Greek, it was not worthwhile for any theologian to dispute with him, and thus called forth the remark from Luther that he cared more for his Philip's judgment than for a thousand dirty X, Johann Eck being the Catholic theologian who more or less roasted Luther a couple of years before this. I will not praise Philip, he said on this occasion. He is a creature of God, nothing more, but in him I honor the word of God. Perhaps I, Luther speaking of himself, perhaps I am Philip's forerunner, destined like Elias to prepare the way, Luther thinking too highly of Philip Melanchthon. The influence that Melanchthon was to have on the future of the Reformation cannot be overestimated. It is an old simile that makes him the coiner of the gold which Luther brought to light. He, it is, who first reduced to a theological system the teachings of the new religion. Luther once excuses his own violence by the constant necessity of fighting against mobs and devils. He, it is, who must dig up the stumps and stones, level the thickets and hedges, and break a path like the woodsman through the forest. But Master Philo, quoting Luther, derives cleanly and I'm sorry, drives cleanly and quietly along, sows and waters to his heart's content, according to the rich gifts that God has given him. When Melanchthon wrote his Loci Communes or Common Truths of Religion, Luther ranked the book as second only in point of excellence to the Bible itself. Melanchthon's great aim was to give a scientific form and scholarly basis to the theology of the Reformation. His was not a nature that would try to storm the fortresses of the Romanists. He sought rather by reasoning to show how antiquated and useless they were. His chief fault was a desire to please in all directions. And the future was to show how his efforts in the matter of conciliation were to weaken his party and to draw down upon him the disapproval, if not the contempt, of his own friends. And now the author moves on to Ulrich Hutton, who we've heard quite a lot about from Johann Janssen in his History of the German People. We will hear more about him. In complete contrast to the life of this quiet scholar was that of another man who for a short season concentrated upon himself the gaze of all Germany as, rushing and storming on, 
he wildly endeavored to rouse his nation to that pitch where, once for all, it would irrevocably break with the tyranny of Rome. It is a singular part, that which Ulrich von Hutten plays in the history of the Reformation. Knight of the pen as well of the sword, he is, above all, the ardent patriot, smarting and writhing under his country's wrongs. Independently of Luther, he had begun his attacks on indulgences and papal extortions. Long after the posting of the theses, he had looked on the Wittenberg reformer as a mere squabbling monk, and more than once had been known to pray that Eck and Luther might annihilate each other. My desire is, he wrote, that our enemies should live as much in discord as possible. God grant that all who hinder the ripening of the new culture shall be destroyed. However, the Leipzig disputation and the great writings that quickly followed it had awakened Hutton to glowing enthusiasm, and he had unreservedly placed himself on Luther's side. Day and night, he wrote to him, Will I serve thee without wage? Many a brave hero will I rouse up for thee. Thou shalt be the captain, thou the beginner and ender. All that is needed is thy command. For a time, the two names were constantly linked together. Their portraits appeared side by side on the cover of one of Hutton's works. They were likened to Orestes and Pilatus and the litany was paraphrased into a prayer for their safety. Men watched with breathless interest to see how they would extricate themselves from the meshes cast round them by the agents and friends of Rome. But soon a cleft became apparent, their paths divided, and Hutton, having failed in his own great designs, died ruined heartbroken, and in exile. Hutton's family was of the old Franconian nobility. His immediate ancestors had been no better than their neighbors, and there were times when their castle of the Steckelberg was nothing less than a den of robbers and had to be raided as such by the emperor's command. The young Ulrich's father, harsh and tyrannical, had destined his son for the church, had sent him to the monastery of Fulda to be trained for this vocation, and would hear of no argument in favor of any other career. In the very days when Luther, braving the wrath of his own father, was entering the Augustinian order at Erfurt, Hutton, too, cast off the parental yoke, burst these irksome monastic bonds, and fled from Fulda to worship the rising sun of humanism. To the full, he experienced the hardship of the vagabond scholar's life, begged and worked his way from one university to another, endured shipwreck and plague, and ruined his health forever and forever the immoral humanist pagan, he ruined his health because he quite appropriately 
died of syphilis. The author explains Hutton is a writer. The knowledge of his peculiar powers came to him in a curious way and in the midst of his worst misfortunes. At Griswold, a certain Henning Lotz, professor of law and son of the burgomaster of the town, had received him into his house, had clothed and fed him, and supplied him with funds. Then, for what reason we know not, a bitter quarrel had ensued, and the young scholar set out for Rostock without being able to reimburse his benefactor. The burgomaster and his son sent their retainers after him. He was seized and stripped of all he had, down to his own poetic compositions, and was forced half-naked to continue on his way. Boiling with rage, he soon after wrote a satire on the two lotses, which revealed to the world of humanism its greatest master of invective. Not many years had passed before the power of Hutton's pen was felt by the highest in the land. A poem addressed to the Emperor Maximilian exhorted him in stirring words to march against the Venetians who had obstructed his way to Rome. And this is a reference to one of the episodes of the Italian Wars. Maximilian was a Habsburg. He was king of the Germans from 1486 and Holy Roman Emperor from 1508 to his death in 1519. To continue with the account of Hutton, a number of epigrams were launched against that warlike pope who had taken the name and wished to emulate the deeds of the great Julius. A panegyric, and he's talking about Leo X, a panegyric on Albert of Mainz gained for its author 200 gold guldens and a position at the archbishop's court. I believe that Johannes Janssen had called them gold Florence. There came a time when, in the presence of his whole court, Maximilian placed a laurel wreath on Hutton's head, proclaimed him orator and poet with all the advantages that officially pertained to those titles, and freed him from all jurisdiction save his own. So, writing nice poems about the emperor can take one a long way. The emperor held this scion of a noble knightly house as one whose writings were in everyone's hands and whom the most learned men in Germany and Italy called their friend. Hutton moved against Duke Ulrich of Württemberg along with others. He wasn't alone. And our author says, nothing spurred on the genius of this man like some injury to himself, to his family, or to his country. When Duke Ulrich of Württemberg, the most profligate and reckless of the German princes, struck down with his own hand a relative of Hutton's who had scorned the suggestion of a dishonorable compact, the poet pursued him 
in a series of orations that aroused all Germany. Every chord was struck that could move to pity and to indignation. The advantages to which the murdered man was bidding farewell, the sorrows of disconsolate relatives, the iniquity of the princely offender, ever and anon a perfect volley of abuse was let loose against this blot on the Swabian name. This eternal shame of his people, no longer a prince, no longer a German, no Christian, not even a man. Although the Duke of Wurttemberg had married the emperor's own niece, Maximilian was forced to place him under the ban of the empire. He soon forgave him, it is true. But Hutton's day of vengeance came quickly enough, and he himself was able to play a part in the overthrow of his enemy. Duke Ulrich permitted himself, in a moment of anger, to commit acts of terrible violence against the city of Reutlingen, which belonged to the famous Swabian League. The League raised an army and occupied his lands, and Hutton accompanied the expedition, being allowed the satisfaction of exhuming the remains of his relative, Hans von Hutton and transporting them to Franconia. Duke Ulrich went into exile. His lands were handed over to the mercies of Charles V in return for payment to the League of the Costs of the War. It was thus the Württemberg Staghorns found their way into the coat of arms of the House of Habsburg. In the Reformation, Hutton finally found a cause well adapted to call out to the full his magnificent powers of rhetoric. The dialogues that he now wrote contained utterances that never were and never could be pardoned him, anathemas and excommunications, and the whole assemblage of papal weapons were exposed to withering mockery. The abuses and the claims of the Roman court were scourged with a force and a realism beyond conception. The past, too, was made to give its relentless testimony, a writing of the time of the bitter quarrel between Henry IV and the church was drawn forth from its long resting place and given to print. A new edition was made with a preface dedicated to the Pope of the masterly writing in which Laurentius Valla exposed the utter falsity of the document known as the Donation of Constantine. And of course, that is a medieval forgery where Constantine was supposedly granting Europe to the church or, or something along those lines. The writing in which Hutton may be said to have first thrown down the gauntlet to the papacy is known as the Vediscus or Roman Trinity, in which, three at a time, the prevalent scandals and abuses are dragged to light. It is a terrible arraignment of the whole papal system. And here, as ever, Hutton's chief grievance is Rome's contempt for the credulity and generosity of the Germans, credulous because they fell for the, the purgatory scheme, and generous 
because they were buying indulgences on behalf of their dead relatives. Look here, he cries, the great central barnyard, where is heaped together the plunder of all lands. In the midst sits that insatiate weevil, which, with its followers, swallows unheard of amounts. They have sucked our blood, they have gnawed our flesh, they are coming to our marrow, they will break and crush our every bone. Will the Germans never take to arms? Will they never rush in with fire and sword? Those are plunderers of our fatherland, reeking with the blood and sweat of the German people. They are robbing us like hungry wolves, and we, forsooth, must continue to caress them, may not stab or smite or lay hands upon or touch them? When will we finally grow wiser and avenge our shame, which is the common shame of all? And of course, the same words can be written of the Jews in New York and Washington today. And the American people won't rush to arms either. Every step in Luther's progress is followed by some new publication on the part of his literary champion. Of course, an allusion or a reference to Hutton, who now throws off the trammels, even of humanism, and disdaining the more elegant and scholarly Latin, writes directly for the people in the German tongue a poem on the burning of Luther's works in some of the German towns was followed by a republication of the papal bull with ironical comments and glosses. We shall see presently how, at the Diet of Arms, each of the persons most concerned on the Catholic side felt the weight and the sting of this avenging pen. Soon we shall continue with this chapter from A Short History of Germany when we further discuss Franz von Sickingen, another robber knight who, like Hutton, was also involved in the success of the Reformation, if only for a short time, and whom we will hear more of later this evening. First, we shall discuss one other rather interesting political figure whom we have just seen mentioned here, Ulrich, the Duke of Württemberg. This Ulrich, while an enemy of Ulrich von Hutten, nevertheless joined the Protestant Reformation a little later in its history, but which a period we won't cover for quite some time and was also instrumental in its initial success. Ernest Henderson did not provide too many details about this Ulrich Duke of Württemberg, so we will provide a few more compiled from various sources. With all certainty, it can at least be said that Ulrich Duke of Württemberg was a very immoral man 
Earlier in the series, we recounted the profligate and lascivious lifestyles of many of the German princes and archbishops. And we used the court of Prince Albrecht of Mayence, or Mainz, who was also a Christian bishop, as the primary example. Ulrich of Württemberg was just as profligate and ran himself into debt with his extravagance. He earned the enmity of Ulrich von Hutten because he had killed his cousin, Hans von Hutten, after developing an unseemly desire for Hans's wife. The Standard History of the World by Great Historians, published in 1914, by the University Society in New York, only said of Ulrich that Duke Ulrich of Württemberg, a hot-tempered and cruel prince, had murdered with his own hand Hans von Hutten, a knight of his court, from motives of jealousy. Often, the proper histories are far too kind to the basest of men. When Ulrich, Duke of Württemberg, had laid a heavy burden of taxation on his subjects to pay his debts. The so-called Poor Conrad Rebellion of the Peasants in 1514 was the result. Ultimately, and in spite of his marriage to the Emperor Maximilian's own niece, Ulrich was put out of his estates and exiled until he was restored with the aid of Philip of Hesse in 1534. In the meantime, in the interim, what um, Ulrich von Wurttemberg was not responsible for was a peasant's uprising, which took place practically all over Germany and lasted quite some time, and that happened in the early 1520s, 1523 or 24, I believe. By this time, by the time of Ulrich, Duke of Württemberg's restoration in 1534, his enemy Ulrich von Hutten was long dead. After his restoration, Ulrich of Württemberg destroyed the Catholic convents and monasteries and seized the Roman church properties throughout Württemberg and advanced the cause of both Luther and the Swiss reformer Zwingli. However, the later half of his rule in Württemberg was just as troublesome as the first, where he further oppressed his subjects with heavy taxation and joined in a failed war against the Emperor Charles V. But he avoided another attempt to have him deposed by Charles's brother Ferdinand and managed to be succeeded by his own son when he died in 1550. Ulrich, Duke of Württemberg, seems to be a shining example of the noblemen who joined the Reformation not for religious, but for political purposes. A man who was a murderer, an adulterer, and an oppressor of the poor, like Ulrich Duke of Württemberg, could hardly care about religious disputes. 
Now we shall continue <coughs> with our primary, <coughs> excuse me, with our primary source for these presentations, which is the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen, Volume 3, Book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. We had left off on page 108, where Ulrich von Hutton had realized the value of Luther's position against the Roman Church and how it may be used to advance his own humanist agenda. Formerly, he had hoped that the infighting of the monks would end in their mutual destruction, but now he shall come to Luther's aid. He, meaning von Hutten, did not believe at the time that the Lutheran movement could forward his object of revolutionizing political conditions in favor of the nobility. Towards the end of the year, 1518, he published a pamphlet entitled The Turkenreed, which had been written in May, and which he denounced, in which he denounced not only the court of Rome, but also the German princes and their reciprocal robbing and plundering, burning and pillaging, and foretold an early rising of the people, which happened five years later. While he himself, the year before, had undertaken a mission from the elector Albrecht of Mayence, or Mainz, to the French court in order to conclude an alliance with Francis I, and to promise the later Albrecht's vote at the election of a new emperor. He now declared that it was scandalous, un-German, and treasonable, a scandalous, un-German, and treasonable plan to transfer the imperial crown to a foreigner, as though princely blood had died out in Germany. In an appendix to the Turkenried, for all free and loyal Germans, he turned the point of his attack against Rome. Rome must take care, he said, that liberty gagged and well-nigh strangled did not suddenly break loose. Ultimately, Charles V was not succeeded by Francis I. He was succeeded... I'm sorry, Maximilian, as Holy Roman Emperor, was not succeeded by Francis I. Rather, he was succeeded by Francis I's rival, Charles V. Francis I was the same greedy French king who later sold the use of the port at Toulon to the Ottoman Turks. France even joined in military operations with the Turks against the forces of Charles V and maintained an unholy alliance with the Turks for many years at this time. With this, we shall continue with our history and the account of Ulrich von Hutten's joining himself to the cause of Martin Luther. In order to be more free and independent in his fight against the ecclesiastical corruptors of Germany, he, meaning von Hutten, now wished to leave the court of Mayence. He had been in the employ and under the salary of Albrecht of Mayence 
for several years now. He attained that position through the help of his fellow humanists, namely Erasmus, or primarily Erasmus. And here once again, through the intervention of Erasmus, to whom Hutton appealed for help in March 1519, he was relieved from service at the Archbishop's Court without having his salary withdrawn. For the publication of all manner of controversial writings, satires, and pamphlets, he made use of the printing press of Schoffer at Mayence. In March and April 1519, he joined in a campaign for the expulsion of Duke Ulrich of Wurttemberg. Full of ardent hope, he wrote to Erasmus before setting out, in a short time you will see all Germany in commotion. During this campaign, he became intimately associated with Franz von Sickingen, of whom he speaks as a great man, every inch of him, and one who will someday achieve great fame among the German nation. Sickingen is clever, he wrote to Erasmus in June. He is eloquent, he grasps everything at once, and he is developing that capacity for action which is necessary in a commander. May God prosper the undertakings of this brave man, who will yet bring great glory to the German nation. Hutton had found in Sickingen the man he needed for the execution of his revolutionary plans. The young and experienced king so reckoned both the knights, referring to Charles V, would easily be won over to their plans. Hence, they did all they could to secure his election as emperor, and they hoped, above all, that Charles's younger brother Ferdinand would make common cause with them against barbarism, which is how they saw the scholastic monks and the academics. We must try to win over Ferdinand, Hutton wrote to Melanchthon. Sickingen would much like to bind him by some service. Hutton dedicated to Ferdinand a polemical pamphlet purporting to date from the period of the conflict between Gregory VII and Henry IV, and of course it did not, in which he represented the later as the ideal of an emperor and claimed from the newly elected King Charles as his highest duty, the liberation of Germany from the tyranny of papacy. Charles must take Henry IV as his pattern. Ferdinand must encourage his brother in this course. He, meaning Hutton, would stand by them both as a zealous advisor. Now here it seems that Hutton had thought rather highly of himself. However, we have already seen that his literature had been celebrated even by the previous emperor, Maximilian, who died in January of 1519. He was replaced by Charles V, who was also of the House of Habsburg, who was elected in June of that year, and who firmly remained a Roman Catholic. That must have disappointed both Hutton and Sickingen. I don't think they lived too long to um, realize the fruits of Charles V's tenure, however. The two were always close. 
I'm sorry. That must have pointed both Hutton and Sickingen. And Charles's brother was Ferdinand. Charles and his brother were always close. And in 1556, Charles advocated voluntarily so that his brothers could succeed him as emperor. Now, Charles V and his brother never switched to Protestantism, but the Reformation was basically allowed to continue, rather unmolested by the emperor and his forces under Charles V. Continuing from page 109 of our history, in July, while awaiting the moment for weightier undertakings, Sickingen, at the instigation of Hutton, threw himself into the still-pending Reuschland affair with the intention of settling the ecclesiastical struggle by the sword to the joy of the humanists as lovers of right and justice. He threatened to declare a feud against Hoogstraten and and the heads of the Dominican order if they did not make amends to the pious and learned Reuschlin. And he also threatened to oppress the city of Cologne, whose magistrate was on the side of the Dominicans. What Sickingen meant by a declaration of feud, and to what length his oppression might go, the towns of Varms, Landau, and Metz, and the Landgraviate of Hesse had been learning by gruesome experience since the year 1515. For the last two years, said the Burgomaster and the Council of Varms in March 1517, in a public report, Sickingen has been devastating the land, cutting down the corn and the vines in the fields, setting fire to the fruit trees, chopping off the hands and ears of the poor laborers and their work, and killing them in wanton cruelty, flogging women and young girls, and violating their honor, seizing young boys and putting many to death, plundering and wounding pilgrims, messengers, and merchants, and cutting crosses on their foreheads, flogging, lacerating, plundering, and making prisoners of priests and monks. The humble demeanor of the Dominicans towards this dreaded robber knight is easily understood, but no respect was felt for him. The convention of the order, intimidated by Hutton, deprived Hoogstraten of the priorship of the Dominican Monastery of Cologne, and also of the Inquisitorship, and bound him over to silence. By a papal brief, however, the later was restored to his offices, and the long-pending Reuschland case was settled in favor of the Dominicans. So somehow, at least it seems, they probably did it for the wrong reasons. Somehow the papal office managed to do something right. The Pope declared the Bishop of Spire's decision invalid, interdicted the Augenspiegel as an offensive and pernicious book unduly favorable to the Jews. Augenspiegel was Reuschland's defense of the Kabbalah 
and the books of the Talmud, and sentenced Reuschland to pay the whole costs of the lawsuit. Reuschland's connection with the revolutionary barons now came to an end. In vain, Sickingen offered him assistance and invited him to his castles. Reuschland submitted to the decision of the head of the church and assumed towards Luther a decidedly orthodox attitude. In other words, Reuschland threw all of his supporters under the bus. He endeavored to withdraw his great-grandnephew, Melanchthon, from the dangerous vicinity of this religious innovator. And in a letter to the Bavarian dukes, he spoke so decisively against Luther and Hutton that Hutton declared enmity against him. It is altogether unworthy of you, wrote Hutton to Reuschland, to fight against the party which attracts to it all men who have any honorable cause at stake, men whose associate you ought to be. But do as you please, and if your age allows it, go to Rome, where all your aspirations draw you, and kiss Pope Leo's toe. They were too proper to say ass in those days. And go on writing against us to your heart's content. In spite of you and the hubbub that you and these godless Romanists are making, we shall succeed in breaking the heaviest chains and in freeing ourselves from the disgraceful bondage which you, as you boast, have always endured willingly, as though it were worthy of you. Luther's enterprise is distasteful to you, and you would gladly bring it to naught. But you will find in me a determined adversary, not only if ever you should fight against Luther, but also if you submit yourself to the Pope. With Luther and Hutton, with Luther, meanwhile, Hutton had entered into close fraternity. In the year 1519, his relations with the Archbishop of Mayence, from whom he received a salary, had debarred him from a public alliance with Luther. But in January and February 1520, he made advances to the reformer through the medium of Melanchthon, to whom he wrote on January 20th, Sickingen has charged me to make known to Luther that in case of his encountering opposition in his struggle and having no hope of better help from any other quarter. He is to turn to him, and he will do all he can. Believe me, he will scarcely obtain more trustworthy help in any other quarter. Luther is beloved by Sickingen. His letter from Steckelberg on February 28th was still more pressing. Make haste and convey to Luther the message I sent him from Sickingen. But pray between ourselves. I do not wish anyone to know of my being mixed up in this affair. If difficulties accumulate around him, he has no need to seek help from any others. With Franz at his side, he may safely defy all his enemies. I am projecting great and important schemes with Sickingen. Were you here, I would tell you all about them. I hope a bad end will overtake the barbarians 
and all who helped to keep us under the Roman yoke. My dialogues, the Romish Trinity, and the onlookers are already in the press, and they are remarkable for freedom of expression against the Pope and the bloodsuckers of Germany. So someone who is rather new to our presentation of this story so far, a German knight friendly to the cause of the humanists named Franz von Sickingen seems to have forced the revival of the Reuschling controversy and, and the cause was finally lost. Then Reuschling, the longtime defender of the Jews and their books, betrayed those who supported his position most fervently, evidently because he too thought that Luther was a heretic. This caused him to become estranged even from Philip Melanchthon, the nephew he had helped to raise and to educate. In league with von Hutten, Franz von Sickingen then joins the cause of Martin Luther. With this, we may want to know more about von Sickingen. And for, for that, we shall return to chapter 12 of A Short History of Germany by Ernest F. Henderson. Sickingen as a robber knight. Sickingen, like von Hutten, was evidently from a class of free knights who were property holders, who were not obliged to any particular lord, in, which existed in Germany for quite some time. And Henderson says, Hutton's course, meteor-like as it actually was, would have been checked still earlier had it not been for the powerful protection of a man who was feared from end to end of Germany and who now, for a brief moment, became intimately concerned with the fate of the Reformation. This was Franz von Sickingen, who was soon to perish in the double attempt to open the gates for the gospel and satisfy his own overweening ambition. Sickingen was a robber knight, but with certain noble traits, and with such a conception of his calling that one wonders if he ought not rather be put on the level of a belligerent prince. In carrying on feuds, he seldom aimed lower than a duke or a free city of the empire, and there are persons who insist to this day that his weapons were only drawn in favor of the oppressed and of those to whom justice had been denied. Be that as it may, he was not above exacting enormous fines and being an excellent manager, he greatly increased his family possessions. He was lord of many castles, the chief of which were the Ebernberg near Kruznach and Landstuhl near Kaiserslautern, which he furnished with splendid defenses. The feud which first brought Sickingen into prominence was that against the town of Arms, 
With 7,000 men, he laid waste its fields and vineyards, stopped its commerce, and cut off all communication with the outer world. Nothing daunted by the ban of the empire, which no one dared to carry out, he continued his hostilities until, after years had passed, his demands had all been granted. In the end, the ever-needy Maximilian, instead of punishing the peacebreaker, freed him from the ban, took him into his service, and sent him off to fight against Hutton's old enemy, Duke Ulrich of Württemberg. His position as the emperor's commander did not hinder him from falling upon the young landgrave of Hesse and wresting from him an agreement in favor of some neighboring knights, nor from compelling the magistrates of Frankfurt to make him a large payment of money. At the same time, at the time of Maximilian's death, his position at the head of an army made him such an important personage that his favor was regularly sued for by Spain and France alike. He declared for Charles V, who rewarded him with the title of Imperial Chamberlain and even deigned to accept from him a loan of 20,000 gulden. Hutton and Sickingen first came together in the days just preceding the Württemberg campaign. The poet visited the Condottiere or warlord, probably in connection with that affair, and afterwards sent him a translation for which Sickingen had expressed a wish. From that, time, from that time on, through the three stirring years that followed, the two men were bound together by a friendship that knew no slackening. It was under Sickingen's standard that Hutton served in the bloodless campaign, even sleeping with him in the same tent, meaning the campaign against Ulrich, Duke of Württemberg. Himself, without learning, Franz knew well how to appreciate it in others. While Hutton conceived a great admiration for his friend's natural abilities, in a letter to Erasmus, he speaks of him as a man such as Germany has long been without and who doubtless will bring the nation fame and glory. So here we see why Hutton was so enthusiastic about Sickingen's ability to protect Martin Luther and even about the possibility of winning Charles V over to the cause of the reformers, which never happened. However, for a variety of reasons, even though Charles V was opposed to Luther's theology, he never took up arms against the German reformers. And our author continues, far as theological matters had hitherto been removed from Sickingen's horizon, he was not without respect and feeling for religion. He had founded a nunnery near the Ebernberg, and Hutton was able to ridicule him roundly for a plan he had long cherished of building the wooden-shoed Franciscans a new nest. Tolerant by nature, he had offered his support to Reuschlin when the latter's interminable difference with the Dominicans seemed to bring him once more in danger and did him good service by declaring a formal feud against his tormentors. 
Hutton now talked to Franz of Luther, and little by little, the knight became thoroughly interested in the man whom the Romanists so hated and pursued. He at last sent word to Wittenberg that should Luther, through his teachings, come into difficulties and have no other resource, his castles were at his disposal. It was about this time that another knight, Sylvester von Schomburg, offered to come to the reformer's aid with a hundred followers. Luther was pleased, if only for the moment, and he wrote to Spalatin, Schomburg and Sickingen have made me secure from the fears of men. If Luther were more grounded in his Christianity, he should have had Christ to make him secure from the fear of man. But nevertheless, there is one lesson that we must derive from all of this, and that is that religion cannot succeed without politics. Therefore, our Christian religion must be our politics as well as our faith. However, these German politicians, as well as the pagans, were quick to come to the side of the Jews and showed that in defense of Reuschland. This alone should more than demonstrate that Germanism alone without a solid Christian foundation, had no defense against the Jews. And it took Luther years to realize the treachery of the Jews. Actually, another 20 years from this day. We must also learn from experience that politics and religion must mix. If we refuse to mix the two, we assure our own destruction. The decline of America and all of the West is evident in the rising of the Jew because we have taken Christian practice and Christian morality from out of public life. If politics and religion did not mix, there would have been no Reformation. And many of the other great events which built our Western civilization would have never happened. We can only find salvation when we make the two one. And once again acknowledge that Christ is king over our white nations. When we return to Martin Luther in life and death, which we'll get to eventually, we shall commence with the danger from which, at this time, Ulrich von Hutten was threatened by the Pope. Both he and Sickingen will soon be dead from non-papal causes, and the Reformation will once again take Another strange turn. Next Friday, Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, Part 2. Yahweh willing, we will also be here next 
Saturday evening and that Sunday afternoon with Sven Longshanks, which is August 2nd. And hopefully, by Wednesday or Thursday of this week, the program topics will be available on the event calendar at Christagenia. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.